Well, good morning, Hallows Church. My name is Stephen, and I serve as the church planter in residence here. Uh, guys, I'm super excited to open the word with you today. If you have your Bible, I would love to invite you to open it uh, to a book that we call the book of Luke. This is uh, an account of Jesus' life, a biography of Jesus, if you will, uh, written by a first century lawyer and doctor that we call Luke. Um, it's in the New Testament of your Bible about three-fourths of the way through. If you're having trouble finding it, you can look in the table of contents. There's no problem with that. Uh, but, guys, a couple years ago, I was uh, traveling around the country of Laos, which is one of the poorest countries in the world in Southeast Asia. Uh, and I was in the poorest province of this uh, poor country. And uh, I got to go to this beautiful temple. Um, and this temple, it was a Buddhist temple. And as we walked up, there was just like rows on rows on rows of these golden statues. It was absolutely beautiful. But uh, when we got, we got to go inside and meet with a monk, we, we just watched for a while as he was praying with people, as he was blessing them. People were coming and kneeling, and he was saying a, a blessing over them. He was actually speaking in a language that they didn't even understand. It's it very, very interesting. But um, we got to then have a conversation. By we, I mean the, uh, the missionary that we were with, because I don't speak Lao, but um, they, so the, the missionary that we were with and this B Buddhist monk started having a conversation. We learned that this guy's name was Gop, which means frog. I think it's a nickname. I don't know that a mother actually named her child frog, but hey, maybe there's something to it. But uh, so Gop was telling uh, us about what kind of his tenets of life were, what Buddhism was really about. And it's really interesting because he then asked uh, us what we believed and, and we got to share about about Jesus uh, and, and about the Christian faith. And he was very interested because he didn't really know anything about Jesus. He had heard about a man named Jesus and he had heard that there were these ideas and thoughts, but uh, he, he didn't really know anything about Jesus. And he was very interested. So he's asking all of these questions. And it was really interesting because the, 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 we got to this idea of eternal life. And that is where we completely lost him. Because you see, one of the tenets of the Buddhist faith is that all life is suffering. That's, that's what they believe. They believe that life is a series of suffering and that they are trying to do enough good works so that when they pass away, their life will end. Because what they believe is that if you haven't done enough, that you will come back and be reincarnated. And based on how well you lived the previous life, you will come back as a certain kind of entity here. You'll be poor or you'll be you'll be rich, or maybe you'll be a dung beetle, or maybe you'll be a tree, or maybe you'll be whatever it is based on, on the good work or the bad work that you did in the previous life. And so when, when we introduced this idea that Jesus gives eternal life, he was absolutely, completely turned off to the Christian faith, because in his worldview, life is all suffering. And, and sometimes if we're honest, if we look at life in the kingdom today, in this kingdom of earth, life is a little bit suffering, right? In fact, there's a, a man in the Old Testament, a man named Solomon, and he, he wrote a book named Ecclesiastes. And this is how he describes life in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He says, the words of the teacher, son of David, this is Solomon, king of in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises. 
gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything, look, this is new. It's already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before. And those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Man, that is a bleak outlook. The, uh, Solomon would go on to say that living life is like chasing the wind. Looking for happiness is like running after something that you will never catch. And that is a really tough but kind of honest view of what life looks like. Well, you see, Jesus came to change this futility. Jesus came to create a kingdom that would live on forever, and life in that kingdom would be so much more than futile. In today's passage, Jesus drops a bomb on this futility angle because this kingdom of earth, this futile kingdom is going to pass away, but he came to establish one that would be eternal and that would never pass away, but it would be very contrary to what we have understood life to be like on earth. To give us some context of where we are, we're in Luke chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 20, but in, in the previous verses, Jesus has just prayed all night and he selected his 12 closest followers, guys who have access to him and his teachings like no one else would. So then Jesus walks out into a, what he calls a level place, and then with a crowd surrounding, Jesus, instead of addressing the crowd, Jesus turns and looks eye to eye with his disciples. And then he gives what is one of the greatest discourses of all time. He says this, starting in verse 20. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Skip to verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat false prophets. Now, let me tell you, these verses, just these six, I could probably preach for six weeks on. There is a ton in this, and we're going to cover a bunch more verses here. So this is going to be like the fastest flyover of the Beatitudes ever, okay? So if you think I'm skipping stuff, I am. Just, I, I am. I'm going to skip over things, and you're going to say, why didn't you talk about this? And I'm going to say, I don't know. I wish I would have had time to talk about that. But hopefully in the future, by God's grace, the Hallows is going to do a sermon series specifically over the Beatitudes, but we're going to look at it from Matthew's perspective uh, in, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, uh, a different sermon, actually, that was called the Sermon on the Mount. See, these two sermons, the Sermon on the Mount and the sermon, we could call this one the Sermon on the Level, uh, those, they're, they're very similar, um, but they, they have distinct differences, and those distinct differences let us kind of uh, 
imagine that they're probably two different times, two different places. But if you've ever, you know, those of you who have ever listened to a preacher uh, more times than, you know, three or four, you start to hear some of those same things coming up over and over again. This is probably what's happening with Jesus. Is Jesus is, is repeating a lot of the things that he said before. Um, so uh, they, they hold a lot of the same, but there's some emphasis in Luke's gospel that is very different. It's very interesting to look at. But here Jesus uh, is really saying a bunch of things, but ultimately what he's doing is he's looking at his disciples and he's telling them what life will look like in the new kingdom. He's telling his disciples what they can look forward to if they've chosen to follow him. Life in the kingdom would be full of poverty. And here it seems that Luke is talking about physical and financial poverty, not spiritual poverty like Matthew would talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's telling these men that in this life they will be poor, and that turns out, if you know the story of the disciples, to be very true. See, in biblical times, both in ancient and in Jesus' times, wealth was often tied to compromise, moral compromise. In, in fact, a few uh, weeks ago, we discussed a man named Levi, who's now named Matthew and one of Jesus' followers. But Levi was a tax collector. And we explained that why a tax collector is so scandalous is because a tax collector not only worked for the oppressive Roman government, but also a tax collector cheated their own people to grow their own wealth. This idea of wealth is what Jesus is probably pointing to here. It's not bad to be rich, but really what he's looking at is in his own context, wealth oftentimes is tied to compromise. The other thing that Jesus discusses here, though, they're, they're not quite, like, ambiguous. He says that you will hunger, and this is both spiritual and physical. You will weep, and you will be rejected. And those are absolutes that Jesus is telling to his disciples. He then juxtaposes the plight of those who are living in the kingdom, his disciples, and the plight of those who are out of the kingdom. He says that woe to those who are self-made, self-fulfilled, self-satisfied, and who preserve themselves above others. The woes here speak to those who depend on themselves, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, if you will, and don't depend on what God supplies. See, being rich, being full, being happy, and being well-liked are not evil in their own right. But these were not the realities that the disciples would live in. The disciples would be hungry, would be poor, would be rejected, and would mourn. Jesus, though, was going to go a step beyond their physical plight. He was pointing to how we should live in spite of these sorrows, knowing that we live in a kingdom that would be eternal. See, the kingdom of heaven would be forever for those who decide to be in it. So how are we supposed to live knowing that we will be poor and rejected and we will suffer loss? Joyfully, obviously. See, wedged in between these two lists, we see verse 23, which I conspicuously skipped on my way down. Verse 23 says this. Rejoice in that day, the day when you are rejected, when you are poor, when you are hungry, and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. So I think that Jesus is trying to hint at that, that life in the kingdom is joyful. 
See, this whole idea, these, these beatitudes are all setting up what life in this new kingdom will look like. And he starts with joy. But it's not just joy for joy's sake. It's joy despite circumstances. Despite what is going on in our life, we rejoice because our reward is in heaven and not here on earth. If these hundred years are all that we have, then we should be hoarding up treasures. We should consume whatever we want. We should pursue our happiness relentlessly above the happiness of others. And we should make sure that everyone likes us and that our stance is perfectly aligned with the cultural and political context and whims of the day. But our pursuits are completely different for those of us that are in the kingdom. We should pursue, be pursuing truth and righteousness we should be making disciples. Those pursuits will leave us poor, they'll leave us hungry, they'll leave us mourning, and they'll leave us rejected. But in spite of all of that, Jesus commands us to be joyful. Because these pursuits we have set ourselves to, they matter so much longer than the hundred years of our lives. We can look at rejection and we can be joyful because it is not us but Christ in us that is being rejected, but we have been fully accepted by our own Savior. Friends, despite life's trials in the kingdom, we are to be joyful. Then he goes on to say in verse 27, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good. And lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Now this next challenge that Jesus lays down is so Today, we are struggling with it because it is anti-American. It is anti-capitalist and is downright insane. Jesus lays out a world where we hold nothing with closed fists. He lays out a world where we do not seek vengeance. We prefer nonviolence. We don't give loans, but we give freely. We love our enemies. And this doesn't make sense. This is impossible. How can the world function like this? Honest answer, it can't. See, the world in which we live is a, a gross facsimile of the world that Jesus created. But this world is so broken, but Jesus came to build a new kingdom that would fully be restored. So while we are asked to live this way, Jesus is describing how life will be when the kingdom is fully realized. One day, this will be how we all live. And in doing so, we won't have to seek retribution for evil. Because once and for all, evil will be vanquished. So, 
how do we live in this world that is like we are already in the world that is to come? We have to live with grace as our default. See, life in the kingdom is graceful. We can give grace even when the world doesn't because we have been given so much more grace. Paul, who was an early church father, would go on to write to the early church in Rome that while, while we were enemies of God, Jesus reconciled us to himself. Jesus is calling those of us that have chosen to follow him and that are living in his kingdom to do only what he did. No more, no less. Turning the other cheek, giving to those who steal from you, giving without expecting repayment, and loving those who hate you. This is giving in the kingdom. This is grace in the new kingdom. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went even a step further in verse 36. He says, be merciful just as your father is also merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. See here, Jesus doesn't just command us to give to others what they don't deserve, which is grace. He actually commands us to not give people what they do deserve, which is mercy. See, life in the kingdom of God is merciful. This is probably the, the, the second or third, uh, or the little passage here is one of the second or third most misused scriptures uh, in, in all of the Bible. Right behind probably Jeremiah 29, 11, Philippians 4, 13, and then we have here. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. But see, you know, people who know nothing about Scripture will throw it out at you so you can say, you can't judge my morals. That's what your Bible says. But they grossly misunderstand what this text is saying. It is extremely the wrong way to understand what Jesus is saying. It's actually incongruent with all of Scripture. In fact, Jesus in just a few Scriptures is going to tell us to judge people by their fruit. In fact, Paul would go on to, would call the saints, those of us that are living in the kingdom, the judges of this world. So if judged, if do not judge by, by moral standards was what Jesus was saying, then he would be incongruous with the rest of the Bible. But not judging by a person's moral statue is absolutely not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is countering is a judgmental and, con and condemning disposition. See, Friedrich Godet, who's a Swiss theologian, explained it this way. Jesus is combating the tendency to put our faculty of moral appreciation at the service of natural malignity. Now, I don't know what that means, so the second half of this quote is much easier. Or more simply still, thank the Lord, judging for the pleasure of judging. This is what Jesus is condemning here. No mercy when we look on those who are sinners. We know those people. Obviously, none of you guys here, but we know those people who sit in the back row of church and look at everyone on their phones and say, well, at least I'm not that person. We know those people who look at someone with a criminal record who's struggling to find employment and housing and say, well, if you can't do the crime, don't, or if you can't do the time, don't pay the crime. Or maybe it's 
a mom is looking at other moms who bottle feed instead of breastfeeding or who gives too much screen time or who doesn't give enough screen time or whose kid is melting down in the middle of Target and we look at them and we say, well, at least I'm not them. And we feel better about ourselves. This spirit is what Jesus is countering. In fact, Jesus is targeting and combating directly the attitude that the people who claim to love God held at that time. He's directly opposing the scribes and the Pharisees and telling his followers that you will not be like this because life in the kingdom will be full of mercy. He's telling them that whether or not someone deserves something, we are called to be a people who respond with mercy time and time again. It may not make sense in the world that is, but it's imperative for living in the kingdom and the world that is to come. And then Jesus tells a parable in verse 39. He also told them a parable, can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. Now, in these parables, Jesus talks about an age-old adage, the blind leading the blind. Whether they are actually blind or if they just have a plank that's obscuring their vision. Someone who cannot see leading someone else who cannot see seems to be kind of a setup for disaster. But Jesus seems to be implying something, implying that we who are in the kingdom should be helpful. We who should have spiritual sight should be helpful to those who do not. But how can we be helpful if we are spiritually blind? How can we be helpful if we are hypocritical, refusing to look at our own lives and pointing out the impairment of others? Oftentimes in ancient writings, we find the answer to questions wedged in the middle, which we saw earlier. That's why I skipped verse 23 earlier on and came back to it. We see the same thing here. The answer to how we should be helpful is found right in the middle when in verse 40 it says, A disciple is not above his teacher but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. See, in order to be helpful, we must be fully trained by our teacher, Jesus. And we must act like him. The world is full of people who are trying to, uh, to do good, and they're failing, and often doing more harm than they are help. Finding spiritual enlightenment, or finding your truth, or whatever, whatever else buzzwords that the world is throwing out, it is simply blindness leading blindness. It is people trying to find their way to whatever God they think they need, even if that God is themselves. But the God that we serve came to us to be our teacher so that we might have spiritual sight. Now, so the first piece is about those outside the kingdom, those who are spiritually blind. But the next piece is about us, those who have planks in our eyes. See, I have been this spiritually hypocritical person before. 
the one who sees what everyone else should be doing and then just sits back and judges. The one who sits back and says others should be more joyful, more graceful, more merciful, less judgmental, more helpful, while I sit and being self-reliant and judgmental. In order for us as followers of Jesus to truly live like Jesus calls, we must be helpful to a world. And the only way that we can do it is to study the person of Jesus. But we can't just stop and meditate on Jesus. We cannot just be filled with words. We also must be spurred to actions. We can't just love his words. We must also act his ways. And earlier on in Luke, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching and he pulls out, he's asked to read a scroll of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 61, he read these words, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus says, first of all, that this scroll was written about me. These words were written about me. And then he goes on to show that this is what Jesus is here to do. In order for us to be like Jesus, we have to be about his business, just as he was about his father's business. For us to be helpful, we should be proclaiming good news to the poor. We should be binding up the brokenhearted, setting the captors free, comforting those who mourn. Life in the kingdom is about continuing the work that Jesus began and making the world beautiful again. A world full of people bearing the fruit of joy, grace, mercy, and helpfulness. In fact, this is what Jesus says to his disciples next in verse 43. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Friends, life in the kingdom is beautiful. Beauty is the hallmark of the kingdom. The Garden of Eden, which is the earth in its purest form, was beautiful. But sin marred it beyond all recognition. Earth went from an orchard of every fruitful tree to a place of thorns and brambles. Human hearts went from places where fruits of joy, grace, and mercy were in abundance to places of selfishness, vengeance, and despair. Beauty was marred like an apple with a worm being rotted from the inside out. But the kingdom of God came to restore that beauty that God created. A place where joyfulness, grace, mercy, helpfulness would pour out of our lives. A place where, the, where humanity would pour these, fruit, these fruitfulness out as easy as words from their mouths. Here, Jesus is telling us that to be in the kingdom, we must be fruitful. We must be beautiful. Beauty is an integ integral part of the gospel. If our lives aren't beautiful, if our actions and words aren't attractive, no one comes searching for the fruit of gospel in our lives. 
If the words that pour out of our mouths and the actions that are produced by our hands aren't beautiful, aren't fully reflecting the gospel and person of Jesus, then we have to ask, does the gospel and person of Jesus actually have root in our lives? Beauty is always attractive. The gospel, the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God, they are all attractive. See, people will seek them out if they're fully reflected in the lives of the church and the people who make her up. But too often we are the self-sufficient, vengeful, judgeful, blind, thorn-filled bramble bushes that nobody wants to pick fruit from. In order to be beautiful in the kingdom, we must be constantly and consistently producing the fruits of joy, grace, mercy, and helpfulness. After Jesus shows how this new kingdom would be beautiful, he shows another way that this new kingdom would be contrary to the kingdoms of earth. He shows that his kingdom would be stable. This is something that humanity has greatly desired. See, life in the kingdom of God is stable. For, for Jesus' immediate audience, so for early first century Jewish men and women, stability would be something that their souls craved. For hundreds of years, they had been in turmoil and war and occupation and invasion and exile. In fact, the Jewish people still today live in the middle of much of this. So an idea of a stable king and a stable kingdom would have been a balm to their souls. So he says in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and immediately it collapsed. And the destruction of the house was great. Now, now those of us that have been in church for a long time or grew up in church, we've heard this story many, many times. But I think what struck me as I really studied today is that it's not just the man who hears and knows the words, but it's the man who acts on what he hears. That's the man who has built his foundation on the rock. There's something about meditating on the word of God that is essential, but even as essential is to take those words and to put them into action in grace and joy and mercy and helpfulness. Because only then is the beauty of the kingdom fully realized. Building our lives on a firm foundation gives us a king and a kingdom who will endure. A king who has always been and will always be. A king who is in the same yesterday, today, and forever. A king whose word never returns void. A king whose love never fails. A king whose kingdom will remain even when the earth passes away. Life in the kingdom is more stable than any kingdom that you or I could ever build. It is a kingdom built on the truth of joy and grace and mercy and helpfulness and beauty. Friends, let's live our lives in this kingdom, 
Even when we live in the world that is, let us live life like we are living in the world to come. The world is going to think you foolish, but they are just blind to the truth of the gospel. They are blinded by the ugliness of sin that obscures the beauty of God. Stability is the promise of God's kingdom. When we build our lives on the kingdom and the king who is a solid rock, no matter what storms come, no matter what floods of poverty, hunger, or loss come, your joy can endure. When you build your life in the kingdom, you can give with abundant grace and not seek justice or vengeance for yourself because his justice will prevail. When you build your life on Jesus, judgment and condemnation give way to mercy, and you will find mercy and forgiveness in greater measure than you could have ever imagined. When our foundations are firmly rooted in the person of Jesus, we can be like him and lead those in spiritual blindness to the one who can give them sight. When we build our lives on Jesus and his kingdom, the beauty of God is on full display in our lives. Friends, I flew through these passages. They're deep and they're meaningful. And each line deserves for us to give them more reflection than I am able to give right now. But if I, if I wanted you to take away one thing from this entire time, it's that for us to say that we live in the kingdom, for us to say that we have built our life on Jesus, we must be producing the fruit of grace and mercy and joy and helpfulness. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's just like the gospel. The gospel is simple. Jesus came so that we might be forgiven, to reconcile us to him. He gave his life in place for us so that we can live eternally in this new kingdom. It's simple. But I don't think Jesus would ever have said it was easy. In fact, I talked about the Garden of Eden being the, the world uh, in its most perfect tense. We also see another garden where Jesus is found the night that he is betrayed. In this Garden of Gethsemane, and he is praying. He's praying, and he is so stressed that he's bleeding from his pores. Because what he, he knew what was coming, and he knew it wasn't it was simple to just do the will of the Father, but it wasn't easy. And so living life like Jesus calls us to live is not easy. It makes no sense to give with no expectation of return. It makes no sense for us to give and not expect repayment. It, gives, it makes no sense for you and for me to give mercy where judgment should be. We live in a world full of people who love to live in judgment and condemnation. But that's not the world that we are called to live in. We will be countercultural in everything that we do. It's why Jesus starts with the truth that we will be rejected, we will be spurned, we will be insulted because of Him. But even in that, we can be joyful. In a world that is incredibly unstable, we have a king that will sustain. We have a king who will stand. We have a kingdom that will live forever. It'll outlive the United States. It will outlive 
every kingdom that the world has ever created. So, friends, let's start living our world now like we're already in the world to come. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would teach my heart to know your ways. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to trust that the, the, the words of your scripture are true. They will not return void. Lord, I pray that I would have the courage, empowered by your spirit, to live like this. Lord, I pray that I would live with joy. I would live with grace as my default, with mercy in abundance, that I would be helpful to those around me. God, that I would reflect the beauty of your kingdom and of your creation fully. And ultimately, Lord, that I would build my life on you in your kingdom. And that the proof of me building my life on your kingdom would be me following your ways, binding up the brokenhearted, setting freedom to the captive, comforting those who mourn, proclaiming the year of the Lord. Lord, I pray that these truths would not just be pouring out of my mouth, but they would be pouring out of my heart. Lord, I pray that we as a church would fully reflect you in everything. In Jesus' name.